allow me to read it in its entirety, and then we will go back and look at some of the particulars. I should say, if the outline uh, printed in the bulletin, uh, if you take notes, it might be a little confusing because it's numbered eight points. Actually, there's three with the second one having five subpoints. So uh, you can see the way that they're worded that it comes out that way, just to kind of alert you ahead of time if you're taking notes in the bulletin. In the NIV, this is labeled the steadfast love of the Lord. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to the Lord a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his steadfast love for the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. And he puts the depths in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe before him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his inheritance. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by the great might, it cannot rescue Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their souls from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our, hearts, our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. This is a classic hymn, as it is often thought of in terms of categorizing psalms. The key to understanding Psalm 33 is its relationship to the one that precedes it, Psalm 32, which we considered last week. So keep that in mind. There is a sense where they logically belong together. They are two separate psalms. We explored last week the stubborn depths of sin, the need for repentance and forgiveness, and the blessedness of that forgiven state for those who look to the Lord, And Psalm 33 picks up 
where Psalm 32 left off. And this is intended. These are two psalms. There it has been suggested by some that it might be one single psalm continuing into the next, but there, there isn't really great structural evidence for that. But there is the final verses of Psalm 32 and the first verses of Psalm 33 where the one picks up where the other left off. And that is intriguing. This psalm is an eruption of praise for the steadfast love of the Father through Christ. It's the steadfast love, a steadfast love that is revealed in a number of different ways, various ways. But before we look at Psalm 33, make a couple of observations. There are 22 verses in this psalm. Um, This is not what you would call a Hebrew acrostic psalm, although there are only 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. One might think that each verse begins with the succeeding letter of the, uh, of the Hebrew alphabet. That is something that's done fairly often throughout the Psalter uh, as a poetic uh, device. But this is not an acrostic, although it is the 22 verses that does follow, as it were, the alphabet with the same number of letters. But I would say that some regard, as I said earlier, 32 and 33 as a pair that belong together. And this is not unusual either. You may recall that I began our time here with, with Psalm 20 and 21. And I pointed out these were a pair. They belong together, two separate psalms. They might even be two different uh, situations out of which they arose but they were placed together because they logically and thematically belong together, as this does. And I think it makes sense. First of all, this psalm has no superscription. It doesn't tell us the author as though it was intended to be understood that David wrote it as he wrote the previous one. Uh, there is no superscription on it at all. Uh, The latter, of course, as I've stressed, picks up where the former left off. And though probably unrelated at the time of the composition, Psalm 33 is purposely arranged to follow Psalm 32 thematically. Uh, Andrew Boner, a great Scotsman of the 18th century, had noted the last note of the former is the first note of this psalm. So it's been recognized that they seem to belong together. Now what am I talking about? Here are verses 10 and 11 of Psalm 32. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Then it says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright of heart. And then when we begin reading Psalm 33, we read, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre, the melody, and make melody to him with the ten-string harp. 
Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with shouts, loud shouts. They end and begin together in the ritual of confession and forgiveness. The outcome is explosive praise and worship. And Psalm 33 continues that and enlarges upon where that praise and worship take us. The forgiven ones adore the Lord out of gratitude for his steadfast love. That's the theme of this psalm. That the forgiven ones, carrying over the theme from the previous one, we are the forgiven ones who have rested in Christ as our hope. These forgiven ones adore the Lord out of gratitude for his steadfast love. Contains a call for praise. And we just read those, verse 3 verses. Last three verses are a response of praise. But in the middle, verses 4 through 19, which is the meat of this psalm, we have listed a series of motivations, inducements for praise. And that's what I want to look primarily with you today. We'll begin with the invitation. We've read that. Uh, That begins with, uh, like the Psalm 32 ends, Shout for joy to the Lord, all you righteous. It's an invitation for the forgiven to worship the Lord. Those who know in their hearts the steadfast love of the Lord, which is a theme that swirls around this altar. And this is now, we've added three more uses of the word that 16 times in the Psalter thus far we read of the steadfast love of the Lord. We also see in verse 3 we are called to sing a new song to the Lord. And that is what we sing. Now this is not literally that church musicians now sing, uh, present praise choruses like the old people used to sing hymns like we do here and even worse psalms. Uh, uh, and now we sing choruses and clap our hands and, and the like. No, the new song is the song that those who are new creatures in Christ sing. They now see the, the music of this psalm as something that has transformed their lives. And that's the idea of the new song in, in much the same way that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come, and those who used to, I've known people that haven't loved, they didn't like to sing at all. And God comes into their life and transforms them, gives them a new song. Now they love to sing. They don't sing any better than they ever did before, mind you. But they sing now because they have something to sing about. That's the new song. <clears throat> this, this is mentioned, this idea of the new psalm is mentioned uh, three other times in the Psalter. Once in Isaiah. And as a theme that is all through uh, the New Testament. Uh, Patrick Reardon, in his comments on this psalm, says the song of the believer is always a new song because it springs from an inner divine font. It is the song of those who are born again in Christ. 
and their walk in newness of life. So there's an invitation to praise. And there is reason to praise because of what transpires in the previous psalm. But what are the inducements? And here I'll mention five. I'll mention God's holy character, his creative power, his divine counsel, his sovereign rule, and finally his redeeming grace. When you think about it, the themes that we will look at here, brief, each one briefly, are really the themes that you find in the best hymnology of the church. Many of these themes have kind of fallen off the table in the modern, modern song. Not all. There's some very good modern composers today to which we can be thankful. But there is a whole tradition that lacks in these themes that we see included in Psalm 33 which I call inducements for praise. So what are the themes that repeat themselves in, in this new song that the people of God sing because of the redeeming love of Christ, his steadfast love? Well, we sing of his holy character. Verses 4 and 5, For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his works done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice and the earth is full of his steadfast love. This is a picture of God's holy character bound up in his word, his revealed word, and his works, creation, providence, the redeeming work of Christ at Calvary. All of which God is associated with are found in these words. He is upright, faithful, righteous, and just. Jeremiah said this, which has become something of a defining verse for me. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. Let not the wise man, or let not the strong man glory in his strength. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands, he understands me who exercises righteousness and justice in the earth for in these things i delight says the lord god tells us what he delights in he delights in those who love his holy character and seek to emulate by the grace of god those those are the ones that the lord calls his own we also find here in verses 6 through 9 his creative power. And these words are powerful in and of themselves. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap, and he puts the deeps in the storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord, reverence the Lord, Will all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe before him? Why? For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. This harks back to Genesis 1 as well. And some previous psalms that we've looked at, like Psalm 8 and Psalm 19, or I've looked at uh, in other uh, church contexts, in these latter days here. 
But it's, it mentions here the, the cause of the world. It doesn't get into the details of the process. And, but it does mention the cause that lies behind it. God spoke and it happened. The host of heavens or the stars, the lights of the sky are mentioned here. The heaps of the waters, perhaps oceans and clouds where these are stored for their providential use of the Lord. And they are mentioned as well. That God's hand is upon his creation. That he spoke and they came to be is a sufficient inducement for us to worship the Lord, to fear him, and to hold him in awe. We should be, we all should be in some sense naturalists. We should get away from our devices and spend more time in the public lands and in the parks and in the boundary waters and on the north shore and in the lakes and the mountains because these things are part of God's book of, spe- of general revelation that declare his glory. And that is why I spend time, I'd love to spend time under the dark sky. Now Mark loaned me his infrared binoculars a couple of weeks ago and said, have at it. And I've had a blast sitting on my back deck at night looking at the Milky Way in infrared and seeing things that the naked eye just can't see. And there they are in full view. And um, I, I, I just, what a wonderful heaven. What a wonderful creation the Lord has created. It stirs my heart to love God more for his creative power and his redeeming love. <clears throat> Thirdly, there is his divine counsel. And this is another theme that we include in that new song. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. Verse 10 says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing and frustrates the plans of the peoples. We need to hold on to that verse today. Because there's a lot of fear mongers out there that would have us terrified about what is going on in the world today. And we imagine smoke-filled rooms where, where nefarious people are, are orchestrating the future in some evil way. And, of course, we're all going to die. Well, I've got news for you. We are all going to die, but in Christ we will be in glory. So there isn't anything ultimate to be fearful of. But let us remember that the Lord brings the counsels of these nefarious groups of people together who have their plans. He brings them to nothing, should he so choose. He is still on the throne. He's not ready, getting ready to get on the throne. He's there already. Related to what lies, uh, well, let's say God stood behind. This is, this is a quote from Wilcox. As God stood behind the creation purposes, but as God stood behind the creation of the world, so he stands behind its history. The God of creation is the God of history. And the counsels of the world will, will prevail only if God permits them to prevail 
and they are in alignment with his ultimate design, which is secret to us, by the way. And we ought to be satisfied with that. The nations pursue their own designs, but it's God's purposes that will always prevail. The plan, the king plans, but the Lord directs his heart like a water course. So if your guy didn't get elected, just remember who's lies behind the decisions that they make. God is on the throne, and we need to rest in these promises once again and show that to the world because the world is in a dither over these things. It is in a panic, in panic mode. And yet we have here another, another benediction that causes us to... Uh, desire something greater. Verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as inheritance. Incidentally, that's not about America. It's about the church. It's about his kingdom. The people who have... So that's the nation that is in view here. But by way of application, it certainly is true. If we were a people who... Who, made, who acknowledged that the Lord, Yahweh, is God, it, God's common grace would be showered upon us. Isaiah 50 or 46, verses 9 and 10, I am the Lord, there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times yet to come. Uh, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. The, this is a word for today that we need to remind ourselves. Not only do we hear and sing of God's divine counsel, but we also hear and sing of his sovereign rule. Indeed, verse 13 says, the Lord looks down from heaven. And he sees all the children of man. And from where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. And he who fashions the hearts, he fashions them all and observes all their deeds. Wow. Related to what lies before in his divine counsel and sovereign rule, we see these repetition of words. God's, God's rule is over all, right down to the very hearts of man. Do I need to mention that it's even over when the sparrow will fall from the sky? Or how many hairs or lack thereof we have on our heads? The Lord has numbered them, them all. And then we see this emphasis on the greatness. Human, human beings think of themselves as being great, especially those who are filled with their own hubris. The king is not saved, though, by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The king is not... The, the war horse is a false hope, for salvation and by its great might it cannot be rescued. Now we could put modern implements of war in there 
And it wouldn't change the meaning at all. The greatness of missiles and bombs and, and uh, uh, the skill of soldiers and all. Uh, these are all false hopes. Because they're all in the hands of the Lord. I have three quotes here that I'd like to share with you. The first is from Julian the Apostate. For those historians here, uh, Julian was a, I think, an early medieval uh, emperor who hated Christians and did everything in his life to resist the cause of Christ. It is said that all the enemies of Christ will be obliged to confess at last with Julian the apostate Roman emperor who exerted all his art to abolish Christianity but when mortally wounded in battle he outrageously sprinkled his blood toward heaven and cried out. Vesisti, O Galilee, thou hast conquered O Galilean. Yes, my brethren, Jesus, the prophet of Galilee, will push his conquests from country to country until all nations submit to him. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My friends, that's, that's the theme of Revelation. Dennis Johnson's commentary is simply simply labeled um, the triumph of Christ. That's the theme. Jesus wins. In fact, the truth is Jesus has already won. And we are just playing out the mopping up operation. Now, a word from another RCUS church. My son is going to start an, an evening service down in Rogers, Arkansas at the Grace Reformed Church. And I picked this comment up from him as he was announcing it on Facebook for those who might want to attend. We are starting an evening service on August 21st at 5.30 p.m. Pastor Carr, my son, will be preaching in a series on the book of Daniel. Daniel teaches us that no kingdom on earth can oppose God's purpose for history. And all the kingdoms of the earth will become the kingdoms of the Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The morning servants will continue in the Gospel of John. But Jesus reigns. So that kind of stirred my heart. One more. Dane Ortland has written a devotional thoughts on, on the Psalter. The resounding note in Psalm 33 is the endless rule of God in heaven over all that happens on earth, over all the madness and chaos of this world, all the political conflicts and military endeavors, and voting booths and family destructions and physical illnesses and financial meltdowns God reigns. His sovereign supervision directs all that unfolds here in this life. That's a comfort to me. That's a comfort to me. Finally, is redeeming grace. And we've commented before because this word has shown up again 
We read in verses 18 and 19, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. That's where his primary attention lies. God is for the church of his son, Jesus Christ. Small, great, in out-of-the-way places, in this part of the world or that part of the world or right here across City Hall in Minnetonka. God's eye is upon the people of God whom he loved and gave himself for us in shedding his blood for us. On those who hope in his steadfast love. Simply put, who hope in the gospel, who hope in Christ, who hope in where steadfast love found its fullest fruition at Calvary. That is where our hope lies. Although God looks down on on all the inhabitants of the earth, his eye is turned especially toward those who fear him, those who embrace the gospel, his steadfast love, who have rested in Christ alone and are united to him. It is, it is these who enjoy not only the fundamental covenant promise of forgiveness, previous psalm, but also the promise of life and heaven, and earthly protection in the meantime, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. One of my biggest fears when I was approaching retirement a couple of years ago was destitution. (laughs) You know, I suppose everybody comes to retirement wonders, have I saved enough? I'm ready for this day. And God gave me a promise that just encouraged me from time to time. I'm young, I was young, and now I'm old. And yet I've never seen your children forsaken or your people begging for bread. And that has been the course of our lives from the times we were uh, a, a poor, happy, married couple going to seminary and living off donations from farmers in the area. Until to this day, through the kindness and generosity of the people of God who love the Word of God and have been fed by the Word of God, God has taken care of us. And who am I to say that somehow this life change is going to somehow lead me into destitution? And if so, so what? God will take care of His own. And that is something we can rely on. Andrew Boner again says, we praise him for his character, for his creation, for his counsel, and for his care. So this is a hymn that is filled with explosive praise surrounding these themes that come around and again and again. And the best of the church's song are filled with such themes as these. And the best of hymns are holistic, and often these multiple themes are found in all of them. Last three verses are an incentive to praise. It's a wonderful expression of what it means to trust in the Lord. Our soul waits for the Lord, He is our help and our shield. For our Heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us. Third time that word is used in this psalm. 
even as we hope in you. He is our help. We trust God for his timing and his outcomes in all things. This psalm speaks of our heart. Our hearts are glad and they rejoice and they worship in the Lord because he has changed our hearts from the inside out. That's what his steadfast love does for us. He is our hope. Hope is sometimes used nearly synonymously with faith. It's often the same thing to say, I'm hoping in the Lord, or I'm trusting the Lord, or I have faith in the Lord. It's akin, except faith looks back to a work that is finished. Hope looks forward to the work in its completion. One is backward-looking, one is forward-looking. He is our hope. Again, I close with a quote from Patrick Reardon. And he speaks here of the, the book of Revelation. As I noted earlier, the book of Revelation is essentially about the theme, Jesus wins. Or better yet, Jesus has won. In this world of confusion and distress and uncertainty, Jesus is triumphant. As in Psalm 2, when the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one, we are told the Lord has one response. He who is enthroned in heaven laughs and holds them in derision. Jesus has won. Let us not become fearful or angry, as many of our leaders would have us do, because when we are fearful and angry, we are a people who can be controlled and manipulated. And we can succumb to promises that are vacuous in reality. Let us not go that route. Let us go with joy and worship and show the world the confidence that one can have in God who will never leave or forsake his people. Again, let us rejoice that our names are written in heaven. Patrick Reardon has said that all Christian praise of God is a participation in the liturgy of heaven itself. For the saints gather in glory about the Lamb in the presence of the throne. That's what we're doing here this morning. We are joining thousands upon thousands of angels in holy assembly and array to worship the Lamb who reigns and will continue to reign forever. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, May these words sink into our hearts and bring great encouragement. May they help us, Lord, to think about the great truths that we uh, hold up when we gather corporately to worship you. We pray that you would enable us to depart today with the, uh, the blessing that you offer in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.